0: When she came up for the first time, it was like watching somebody come to, like waking up after a long sleep. And she just was glowing. And the nature of our everything about her, she and I at those moments was like heightened so much just the way when we touched each other or when we kissed. As you know, it's not a sex drug so much as a sensual drug. The bonding between us was like heart to heart it was like our hearts melded it was like a peak ecstatic experience hello
1: everyone and welcome to field tripping today we have charlie winninger with us also known by many as the love doctor Charlie is a Brooklyn-based psychotherapist and relationship specialist who leans into the transformative powers of psychedelics for self-discovery and strengthening bonds. As he puts it, Charlie has recently come out of the chemical closet with the publishing of his new book, Listening to Ecstasy, the transformative power of MDMA. The book dives into his own personal experiences with MDMA and how it has impacted his marriage and also touches on the details about how psychedelics are emotional superglue in a relationship. Charlie, thank you for joining us today and welcome to Field Tripping.
0: Thank you, Ronan. It's great to be here.
1: All right. So the first question out of the gate, just between us two girls, how old are you? And more importantly, isn't that too old for psychedelics?
0: Ah, I have very strong feelings about age and aging, so I'm happy to answer the question. Next month, I'll be 73. When I was writing the book, I did encounter somebody. We went out, uh, my wife, Shelly, had a high school reunion. We went out with friends of theirs and we we got into talking. And one of them uh, said to me, aren't, aren't you a little old for be dabbling around in, in drugs? And what I wish I had said to them at the time, I was a little thrown by the question, um, but I thought about it afterwards. And I thought, you know, at this age, to worry about what other people think of me? If anything, I'm a little too old for that.
1: I think that's 100% spot on. Uh, It's it's entirely true. I mean, one of our old neighbors in Toronto, whenever you asked him, whatever the state of the world was, his answer was always like, no complaint. He was an old Greek guy, right? And uh, I just love the kind of attitude that seems to come with maturity and experience. Like once you've lived through just about everything that life can throw at you and can kind of come out the other side and be like, life is beautiful. I have nothing to complain about. You know, it's, it's amazing. And, and that's the same kind of energy that you bring here, which is like, why not? This is exactly the time to, to, to be doing this kind of stuff, right?
0: Yes, exactly. It's a time to celebrate your age, whatever your age is. I'm I'm proud that I've survived this long. I like to shake people up with their uh, ageism, you know. When somebody says, "Oh, you're 72, you uh, you don't look any more than 62," I like to say it these days. I like to say, "Excuse me, I am 72. I'm happy to look 72. There's nothing wrong with looking my age." And um, I know you mean it as a compliment, but it's not really. When you tell somebody, oh, you look good for your age, it's really a backhanded compliment. You wouldn't say that you look good for a, or you're really smart for a fill in the blank, for any other group in the world. You would not say that, you know, it would be an insult.
1: Yeah, no, that's a fair point. I I know earlier in my career, I worked for... um, MTV Canada uh, and Much Music we were doing a rebranding of a channel called Much More Music uh, and it was focused on and the branding was all about the golden age of youth about how somehow over the last really since the the boomer era age and wisdom got replaced as things to be venerated by being youthful and and young qualities and and everyone's constantly in the pursuit of youth and and so people are pushing off getting married having kids getting mortgages because they want to maintain the the lack of responsibility and and i choose that word carefully but in that particular context to remain young and it's it's really quite delightful to, to hear an all, a different perspective on that, which is embracing exactly who you are and where you are and how many spins around the sun you've taken.
0: Yes. And to bring us full circle here with what we're really here to talk about today, the good thing about getting older and being a psychonaut, being an active psychonaut, one who uses psychedelic substances, is that one can bring their lived experience to the medicine that they're using and it can be a whole rich experience. I liken it to reading a book when you're 20 years old and, and reading the novel again when you're 50 and it's a whole different book because of what you're bringing to it. It's the same thing with doing LSD or MDMA or psilocybin. You bring your, who you are and you become hopefully more substantial as you age. So, you have more to bring to the experience, and therefore, you'll get more out of it.
1: I actually want to delve into that a little bit further. And so, my question was seriously, though, while I'm in full agreement that you're never too old for psychedelics, you know, the idiocy involved in taking the fun out of people of more advanced age is still incomprehensible to me because you've been there, you've done that, you know, you get to enjoy everything that you've got. There are people like Dr. Andy Weil, uh, who's been on the podcast twice now, uh, who in fact, has told us that like, he hasn't felt the call to use psychedelics in quite some time. So my question specifically was, like, why are you on a different path? But I'm actually more interested in, can you be a little bit more specific about how the experience with, experiences with psychedelics are more meaningful? with the experiences of your life? Can you give an example of just like, oh yeah, now I see that the benefit of these years make that experience a little bit more meaningful, a little bit deeper, or or whatever the case may be?
0: The answer is really, as one ages, obviously there's more sand at the bottom of the hourglass than there is at the top. So I know I'm closer to the end. And psychedelics help me grapple with mortality. Um, I had a psilocybin trip once uh, that gave me not the belief, but the lived experience that there's something past this incarnation because I dropped this sense of personality. I dropped the sense of a body, was conscious of what remained after that mushrooms were teaching me that dying can be maybe scary. It's a scary portal because it's the biggest change that one will ever go through. It's a portal into bliss. Joseph Campbell says, I don't need belief. I have experience. I experienced that. And it really reduced my fear of dying. Uh, and MDMA itself, which is of course what my book is about, has given me uh, Shelley and I, since uh, we met in 2000, have done MDMA about 75 times. It's given us such richness and joy and depth of bonding, intimacy, connection, not only with each other, but with other people that we might roll with. We know at this late age, if God forbid we had to stop rolling. Or doing psychedelics for the rest of our lives for some health reason or something like that. We've lived so richly and fully that we have no regrets.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. So you're not going to be like Charlton Heston with, you know, from my cold, dead hands with, uh, with your MDMA at a certain point. You're going to make, if it makes sense, you know, you're going to make the choice to be like, okay, I, I can't necessarily do this anymore and I appreciate what
0: I've got. Like yeah, well, I'll go kicking and screaming. I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll be pretty sad about that, um, uh, but I'll be able to face it.
1: That, that's great. Um, for as long as I can remember, I've personally been fascinated with the late 60s, the hippies and the counterculture. I think maybe I was there in a previous life, to be quite honest. It's, it's one of the reasons I found your experience of growing up during that era so fascinating. I know you go in depth about this in the book, but What was it like, you know, living in that era?
0: Well, I'll tell you, it was, uh, as one author wrote, the best of times and the worst of times. Uh, You think we have polarization in this country now? Well, children and their parents were at each other's throats uh, and there were, it was a pretty horrific time as far as uh, violence and animosity goes, but it was also a thrilling and exhilarating time and a time of unprecedented change. The thrilling part of the 60s is still available today at a place like Burning Man or at the kind of experiences that I have hosted with my wife. We host group experiences with MDMA. We have these experiences that are exhilarating and because the bonding is so deep. That's what was happening in the 60s. The beauty of the 60s is you could tell a friend from a foe just by the way they wore their hair. It was very simple. But today, uh, if you get together with other psychonauts, you know you have so much in common. Because it's not just that you're doing the same chemicals in your life, but if you're a serious psychonaut, you know that you also have other things in common, like a commitment to... Uh, changing the world, uh, commitment to harmony in your relationships, harmony with nature. You have a lot in common. When psychonauts get together, I sense that there's a sense of belonging and rightness about that. That's the essence of what we had in the 60s.
1: That totally resonates with me. Um, We haven't talked about it too, too much, but uh, we've recently started production on a documentary. Looking into the the kind of lived experiences of psychedelics today uh, and how ordinary people are, are using psychedelics to help lead hopefully extraordinary lives. And so we were in Costa Rica a couple of weeks ago, and I, along with six other participants, went through a psilocybin experience and then a San Pedro experience, um, which, based on my somewhat limited experience, is very similar in feeling to MDMA. The connections, you know, and and the sense of belonging that came from that shared experience is it's it's still palpable. It's still alive today, and it's unlike anything I've experienced. So I, I'm in total alignment with one of what you said. One of the things I've struggled with, and I guess there's two questions uh, baked into this one, is in the late '60s there was a common foe. Right? There was the war, uh, which was a unifying narrative for so many disparate groups coming together um, uh, around these experiences. Whereas even though I think there's a very palpable psychedelic renaissance happening right now, and one of my questions is going to be, what did you read about what's happening right now in terms of the psychedelic renaissance and how does it mirror up to what you experienced in the 60s? Uh, and the second question one of the things I struggle with is like I, I would love to feel like the the spirit of the '60s of what you experience could come alive uh, today, uh, but I, I wonder if that can exist without that central theme, like the Vietnam War served in in the '60s, and, and I get a little bit concerned that we don't have that, and therefore, is it going to be a little bit too loosey goosey?
0: Okay, well, um, I, I I know what you mean. Uh, it was all very. There was a sense of clarity then, um, and now we live in a much more confused world. But what I think what we can all unite around is that we live in a society that's completely fractured, and we need connection. You know, I read an article the other day that the violent crime rate in this country is growing higher. And the article was linking it with the sense of alienation that people have. They don't trust their government. They don't trust each other. We're disconnected from each other and shout at each other over social media all day long. And psychedelics is a way through all that crap um, to the heart of the matter, which is that you and I might disagree, but we have much more in common than we have differences. And what we have in common is more important than our differences. And we can also unite in the idea that things are going terribly wrong in this culture and in this society. The planet is in great peril and we need to come to some consensus about what to do about it. Uh, So there's a lot to unite around. So to dovetail into your other question about the psychedelic renaissance, I'm realizing that I am uh, an aging white male. And we were the ones to carry the flag of psychedelics through the dark ages of the 80s and the 90s and into this century. But it's no longer just our flag to carry. What I realized from listening to people on the left is that people of color, queer people, women, et cetera, have been terribly marginalized, not only in the culture, but in the psychedelic culture too and pushed aside, and that guys like us need to get out of the way to let those people rise to levels of leadership. Um, So it's not just my psychedelic renaissance anymore, it's, it's ours. And what I've learned from watching what's going on in other realms of the culture, libertarian through the country that runs through left and right, but mostly leans right, is that people like me in, in New York City and my blue bubble here, it's no longer just our renaissance anymore either, that people who are, who are Republican and might have or vote Republican and have views much different from mine are taking psychedelics. So like it or not, they're part of the community, too. They're part of the Renaissance, too. And they're pushing towards legalization and decriminalization as well. We have to start thinking in broader terms of who we are.
1: The politics of the, the modern psychedelic Renaissance and the, and the politics of the 60s which, is, 60s, which is what I've noticed is that many people in the modern Renaissance in so many ways situate on the left side of the political spectrum but there's a very strong libertarian streak, you know? And sometimes, and I, I got accused of this on the podcast for one of our previous guests, it's anti intellectual sometimes, right? Even giving people a forum to, share their views that Anthony Fauci is the devil is the specific reference that I got criticized for not stopping someone for saying, it's like, that seems to be a, an undercurrent that there's very communal viewpoints, but with a very strong individualistic liberty note. Uh, and I don't know if that's something you've noticed uh, or how you feel about it, but it it's, it, it's hard for me to reconcile uh, to, to some degree how that hangs together and what it means.
0: Well, I don't want to get into the weeds of who's right and who's wrong with all these issues. Um, I don't believe that Anthony Fauci is the devil, but it's got to be about diversity in this, in, in this renaissance, but it's also got to be about the one quality that a, a medicine like MDMA most evokes in, in us, which is empathy. We can argue all day long about who's right and who's wrong and who's right and who's left and and get into all that stuff. If we're going to have a real cultural revolution in this country, which is what I think is happening and which is what I think the, the potential of psychedelics is, then we're going to have to stop demonizing each other. We don't have to agree with, with other people, but we've got to stop demonizing those we disagree with. We have more in common with them than we care to admit. And our commonality is more important than our differences. And that's what we need to emphasize. And if somebody who is a um, Trump voting Republican wants to decriminalize nature and legalize MDMA, etc., As far as I'm concerned, on that important issue, he or she or they are an ally and need to be treated as such.
1: I've spent a lot of time thinking about what's going on right now and where does it lead to? Like, what are the trend lines? Where are we pointing to? And the only place I've landed is I have no idea. And the important thing to take away is that we get to craft it. It's not that we're being pushed into some future that we have to kind of live with we actually get to stop and be quite conscious right now about how we want to craft what this future looks like but it's not easy to think about what is that ideal future
0: the idea i don't i don't think the idea is to be in a peak state it's not the getting high that is the point it's the integration of the experience that's the point before we're enlightened we chop wood and carry water during enlightenment we're enlightened. And after, afterwards, we chop wood and carry water. It's the integration. It's how do you take that moment of elation and enlightenment and weave it into the way you live your life. That's what matters. And that is a matter of creation and, and creating or recreating your life, which of course has a ripple effect on the lives of everyone you touch. And that's where change and, and evolution or revolution comes from. And so the future we want to create, I love the way you put it, Ronan. It's like, if you think you know where we're all going, you're not paying attention. It's up to us to decide where we're all going. And we can get lost in who's really in, tra- in charge and, and, and all that, but that's disempowering. In fact, we are more in charge than we might want to admit because... It's, it really is a sobering responsibility to realize how in charge we really are, all of us. And we can create the future, not only in, in our personal lives, but in our collective lives. And it's up to us to do so.
1: Absolutely. It kind of reminds me, I remember I was young, I was nine or 10 years old when the Berlin Wall fell. Um, but I remember reading about how it was decided that was the end of history, that capitalism won and, and, and that was the end of history. And there's a part of me that feels like if we do this right, you know, there may be a, a real conversation in in a a more thoughtful way about like the end of history, like we'll we'll have tackled some of the most vexing problems that have challenged humanity since we became human. And I I actually really appreciated your line. I don't think uh, I wrote it down here, but you said something that you're hoping or in the 60s and even today that we could give birth to the first true human being or something along those lines. And I I thought that was a a really interesting thought and would love for you to explain that a, a little bit more.
0: You know, these these medicines that uh, we imbibe are consciousness-changing medicines. And it's really about finding out who we really are, what we're really capable of, what our potential is, because we have not really begun to really completely fulfill our potential as human beings here. And that's why I love these group experiences, that's why i love doing mdma with uh, my wife because it's mdma is a chemical of connection it helps us connect with ourselves and 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 each other and the best life that we can live so i don't know i'm concerned i'm veering off here your your question is about how do we create the future
1: that that was it, it to some extent and and i think the sort of extension of that question was how do we avoid the mistakes, uh, the mistakes, I'll say that in quotes, of the 60s? And, you know, a lot of people talk about the backlash and, and you know, the you talked about the polarization. And actually, that's to me, that conversation is a little bit played out. What I'm more interested in, actually, is when you talked about how all of your friends from the East Village kind of grew up, got jobs, and went from the we generation to the me generation. And I think that has... I don't think it set us back. I think, you know, in many ways it's it, it's still been progressive, but probably a lot less so than one might have hoped in the late 60s and early 70s. How do we harness what's going on, I think, right now and and avoid the the backtracking that seems to have happened uh, as, as your friends went to work, you know, so to speak?
0: There'll be a backlash eventually um, against psychedelics because um, liberalization of the laws are happening so fast that you know somebody's going to, do something stupid Um, and then the press is going to grab onto that and because the press loves to build something up and then knock it down. So now they're building psychedelics back up. They'll love stories that, you know, somebody jumping off a building or whatever or or people abusing themselves or each other with drugs. So there'll be a backlash. It's inevitable, but we have to keep keep moving it forward. I think the general direction is is, is forward. There's a lot went wrong in the 60s, of course, and um, my generation made a, a lot of mistakes. One, one of those mistakes was out of rage and out of love. We embraced an old style of communism that was propagated by Mao Zedong and, and Fidel Castro and others. Not, not all of us, of course, but many of us. And I think that was not really the right direction. And so uh, many people were in this country were, which is essentially a conservative country in the United States, you know, reacted against that. Some of our spiritual pursuits were flaky and people reacted against that. Some of our drug experiences were self-indulgent and some people reacted against that. But I think we've learned a lot from the past. I mean, Rick Doblin is a master of of learning how to not repeat the same mistakes of the 60s and not overemphasize the the benefits of psychedelics and underemphasize the risks. Now we've got to talk about the risks very plainly, not oversell psychedelics, be uh, optimistic about their use to help people, but not but cautiously optimistic and be level-headed in the way we speak about these things and responsible.
1: Switching topics from politics to a little bit more uh, love uh, conversation, uh, you, you wear the mantle of the love doctor. How does that sit with you? Uh, is that something that, you know, I, I know that's like the nature of a lot of your practice and, and, and really the essence of, of what you preach to some degree, but I can understand how that mantle may be a little bit uncomfortable
0: uh, there's a newspaper called Newsday that uh, covered me 20 years ago when, when I was speaking to a group of singles and they called me the love doctor and that's how that, that took, a, took off and then the Times quoted that. It's a, it's a little embarrassing to, <laughs> to, be called, mm-hmm. to, to be called that uh, because like, who am I to call myself something like that? But it also feels good because if I'm going to be called any kind of doctor, I'd rather be called the love doctor. Uh, my my message is certainly that here I'm, um, you know, an unrepentant hippie. Um, my message is still peace and love.
1: Throughout your experience of the 60s, even though I guess you were a, a bit of a, a late bloomer um, to actually trying uh, psychedelics, you know, you you landed on. On the conversation primarily now is about MDMA. How, how did MDMA kind of evolve to be the, the top of your pyramid as opposed to psilocybin or you know, DMT or ayahuasca or, or any of the other ones?
0: Well, I had uh, given up on, on MDMA, which at the time was called ecstasy. I had had a few experiences in the 90s that were not good. I didn't know anything about the protocols. Uh, I didn't know about hydration. I didn't know about 5-HTP. I didn't know about sleeping it off and eating well after it and all that. So when I met Shelly in, in 2000 and uh, she learned that I was a psychonaut and wanted to try ecstasy, I was floored because she had never so much as finished a joint in her life. She was 50 years old. And I said, okay, well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll help you you know, I'll guide you. Um, so I felt responsible for her experience. So I made sure that I found some that was pure and started learning about the protocols. So by the time we start, I gave it to. Her, I said, "All right, I'll do. I'll do some as well." Um, so we did it together, and I noticed that with the protocols in place, it was wow! I'd like, what is this? And I, I was watching Shelley. She, which was she was a beautiful person inside and out to begin with, but it was like when she came up for the first time, it was like watching somebody come to, like 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 waking up after a long sleep, and she just was glowing, and and the nature of our everything about her. She and I at those moments was like heightened so much just the way when we touched each other or when we kissed. Um, As you know, it's not a sex drug so much as a sensual drug. The bonding between us was like heart to heart. It was like our hearts melded. It was like a, a peak ecstatic experience. And so, there was no stopping us after that. The joys of our marriage and the, the joys of connecting and, and deepening our relationships with our friends, there's nothing better than MDMA.
1: MDMA seems to have been a, a catalyst for a very wonderful relationship with Shelley. Um, and, and there's a lot of people who talk about the capacity of MDMA to help reconcile couples that are not doing very well. And, and so my question to you was, uh, and I'm sorry if this is an entirely unfair question, but do you think access to supervised MDMA-assisted therapy experiences could have changed the outcome of, of your first marriage?
0: You know, I've asked myself that question. Um, it went deeper than that, or, or more interesting than that. I went to visit uh, Esalen in 1984 uh, Esalen is uh, the grandparent of all the growth centers in the, in, the, in the country. And somebody gave me these two huge horse pills of MDMA. I think they came from Sasha's lab and brought them home and, and told my wife at, uh, at the time that we have to try it. And they just... Hung out in our refrigerator for many years, and finally, I decided, "Oh, they can't be good anymore." and Threw them out like an idiot. I'm sure they were still good because MDMA lasts forever. So I always wondered what would have happened had we uh, had we done that, uh, especially under a guided situation, as as you say. I don't think in my case it could have saved our marriage. It might have helped it last longer. It might have helped. Get through the divorce a little easier uh, with less bitterness and rancor uh, that always happens in divorces. Though I was was not, it was a mutual breakup, but um, no divorce is easy. Um, it would have made it, it would have made it easier, but it wouldn't have saved our marriage. I don't think. No,
1: that's fair. Um, can you speak a little bit to the science or understanding? Maybe it's not the science, but the sci- the understanding of. What makes MDMA so potent as an empathogen and and helping people connect?
0: What it does is it floods uh, your body with serotonin, with your own serotonin, um, and releases oxytocin in the brain. And so what these two chemicals do is make you feel safe and connected and empathetic. Uh, That's why it is the, the chemical of connection. And this can be a, a peak experience, but it also can be a, a real deep experience because what can happen then is you feel safe enough so that if you're in a, if, if your setting is that you're in a, uh, a therapeutic situation and you have trauma in your life, the trauma will just naturally bubble up from below. And the therapist doesn't say, well, think about what happened to you back when... No, no, no. It will just bubble up. Because you feel safe enough to finally face it and and look it square in the eye without being freaked out by it, and so what happens then is you face the trauma with your body with with all the serotonin and oxytocin coursing through your veins, so it it can uh, permanently alter your experience, your relationship to the trauma, uh, um, so that as one person. It, they said, looking at my trauma from this perspective was like watching a shark, a scary man-eating shark in a tank. You know, I'm outside, a shark's in there, it's scary, but it can't hurt me. And that experience can alter forever one's relationship with their trauma uh, so that they can have the trauma instead of the trauma having them.
1: right yeah you strike me as someone who's not uh afraid to uh lean into the more spiritual side of things because I always kind of get caught up and you know and I'm certainly a believer in the you know love is everything kind of mantra, even though it sounds so you know cliche these days when you experience it you you get it um but I often kind of wonder of like is this just a biochemical experience or or is there something higher or deeper or, I guess, metaphysical about the experience of love. Um, And I'm just curious your thoughts on that.
0: Love is a biochemical experience. All of life is. I mean, that's just one place we live as long as we're in a body. I, I like challenging the idea that, well, it's just a chemical and it will soon leave your body. And so what's the point? The point is transformation. The point is that this chemical experience can alter your view of reality for the rest of your life and alter you for the rest of your life. Sobriety is a dangerous state when it's never broken up. Uh, as a friend of mine, uh, the playwright Rich Olaf said, well, all my worst trips have been sober. And when you call yourself sober, but you just jack yourself up with caffeine every day, you're really having a biochemical experience that is uh, skewing your view of reality towards the hyper-rational, the intellectual, pretty much forgetting your body—you're just doing, 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 and thinking, thinking, thinking—and that can be dangerous because it, it, it you, you get very Im- unbalanced, I'm just thinking that the only important part of me is from here up. And I found, for me speaking, for me, uh, I need to. Balance my hyper rationality and my think oriented. You know, I have 10,000 thoughts a day. I need to balance that with physical experience as, it, as, as it's lived in my body, my emotional reality, which is, exists in my body, and my, to use your word before, spiritual reality, which is really beyond my body and beyond my mind, connecting me with what's eternal. In the cosmos and what 's eternal in me, um, so these psychedelics these they're they're tools and uh, tools for 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 consciousness and it doesn 't matter whether it's it's a plant medicine or uh, something developed in a lab uh, Albert Hoffman who created who, who brought LSD into the world, said the people who distinguish between a chemical and and quote natural drug don't really understand the nature of consciousness. LSD alters consciousness. That's what's important. It alters your experience of who you are and what you're capable of. That's what's important.
1: That's a, that's a very fair point. Um, two questions, because I think they relate to each other, was earlier you had mentioned that it's important not to overstate the benefits and understate the risks associated with psychedelic experiences and psychedelic therapy. So particular to MDMA, um, what, what are those risks that people should be thinking about? And then and this is a kind of tangential question, but I think it's related, which is one of the things you talk about um, in your book is the notion of responsible recreational drug use, uh, which is... You know, offensive to the minds of so many, um, and curious to know your thoughts on why you think that is so offensive to so many
0: okay, well, first, um there is a chapter in the book about how to use MDMA safely, uh, how to avoid the Tuesday blues, and which Shelley and I have never had in seventy five experiences uh, and uh, and, the, and the basic protocols, which I mentioned earlier, it's hydration. You've got to keep adequately hydrated, even though you're not going to be thirsty, but, you, but your body is. You're not going to feel thirsty, but your body is. You need to drink a liter of water for the day, unless you're in a hot Club dancing the night away, and that, and then it might mean you might need a little more, not a lot more, but a little more, and we take 5-HTP uh, the night of, with, right at bedtime, and the following day another one or two hundred milligrams at bedtime. Uh, that seems to help us too. I sleep it off uh, and wake up glowing. When I was younger, I didn't need to sleep that much, but I, uh, my body needs to replenish. That's the deal. You have to replenish. It takes something out of your system uh, temporarily. You need to replenish. Part of the protocols is don't let it be so good that you want to do it again next weekend, because that's going to be a problem. You're not going to. Not, probably not going to get as high the next weekend, and uh, and you might get the Tuesday blues after that. You have to space out the, uh, the the times you do it, and we, we won't do it uh, more often than, we do it four or five or six times a year at our age. If we were younger, we would do it no, no more than once a month. And it has to be pure. I won't buy it unless I can test it right there. If your dealer won't let you test it, then you want to buy it, okay, but don't take it unless you test it. You need, a, you need a testing kit that you can get over Dance Safe, DanceSafe.org. Uh, and a lot of people don't know this, but it's it's crucial. Uh, and it's legal and not too expensive to get that testing kit, about 65 $75. And if it's not pure MDMA, do not do it. And you need a scale that you can get real cheap these days over the internet. And uh, so you weigh it. And my advice is don't do more than 120 milligrams. If you're one who has found that, well, it doesn't really work for me anymore because some people sort of get burned out on it, try less. I thought I hit that wall a long time ago and uh, it wasn't working for me anymore. I was very sad. And then counterintuitively, I started like cutting down. I now do 65 milligrams and uh, it's like the first time it's like it's fabulous and Shelly does uh, Shelly does not 120 anymore she does 100 and we boosted little bumps um so these are the kind of protocols I'm, I'm 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 talking about um but you had another question about why do people um
1: why is there a, for example my career path: We we started a company called Canadian Cannabis Clinics. We created the largest network of cannabis specialized medical clinics in Canada, and we've helped probably a quarter million people uh, access the legal system in Canada before we started field trip in the psychedelic space. And it was a constant refrain um, in cannabis, and I haven't heard it as much in psychedelics, but. know there's this notion that medicine shouldn't be enjoyable you know that people might enjoy the experience of medicine and so the question specifically was why do you think so many people are are so uh turned off by the notion of responsible recreational drug use you know it's a a theme that carl hart uh, who's on the board of maps touches on in in his book drug use for adults um you know but it is it is shocking to, to many
0: Yes, uh, and that's because the word recreational is really a misnomer. I prefer celebrational use um, and celebrating being alive, really. And so, what Shelley and I are engaged in is instead of the one extreme of well, one—I shouldn't say extreme, but one end of the spectrum—which is clinical use for healing trauma uh, uh, and do, you know, and research like that. And on the other end of the spectrum, raving the night away with a thousand others in wild abandon, neither of which are, are bad. As a matter of fact, both are wonderful. We sort of do, uh, they take the middle path in the middle um, of responsible, celebrational drug use. And what I call serious fun. We're doing it with respect to the power of the medicine, honoring where it came from, who it came from, and uh, and respect for its power, but also understanding that celebration, joy, fun, and play can be transformational experiences. And they've transformed our relationship to one of, of joy. I can't imagine being happier with another human being. We're entering our 21st year together. Uh, and it's, it's bonded our, our friends and helped build a community of fellow travelers here in New York. What, what could be better than that? And what could be more transformational than that?
1: Completely, completely. Um. I appreciate those thoughts. One, um, one final question um, for you, uh, and asking for a friend, of course. Uh, if someone was going to go on a self-guided MDMA couples experience, you know, you, you talked about the protocols. Um, you know, I think in very practical terms about make sure it's clean supply, make sure you hydrate, make sure you take five HDP. But if you're if you're looking to enhance the bonding experience with your partner Uh, are there any protocols or suggestions you'd make as people embark on on that experience
0: well you can tell your friend that it's all about set and setting of course so um their mindset has to be you know to set some intentions going in explicit intentions that maybe you even write down and prioritize going into the experience. And the setting, of course, has to be a place where you're not going to be, uh, where your phones are off, you're not going to be interrupted, um, perhaps at home or in a beautiful nature setting where you're not going to be interrupted. And let the medicine guide you. Uh, You can refer to your intentions on your phone or your sheet of paper if you want. But the medicine will have a way of uh, working its magic and let yourself say what is in your heart to say. And often, what happens with couples is over time, the stresses of daily life build and little resentments grow to big resentments. There's a lot of static in the relationship that you need to clear out. And One thing you need is that fundamental trust, that bonding of love and trust and safety. So one great way, and there's a diagram in in the book about this, uh, to do it, two great ways to do it. One is by taking your partner's face, cradling their face in your hands and looking them in the eye and saying, I I see the, the light in you. I see the love in your heart. I see the beauty in you. And to do that for each other. Another way is to spoon in a way where actually one partner is sitting up and the other partner has their back to them and you have your your arm over their shoulder and you're you're letting them lean back on you. And it's a feeling of great... um, safety that you're giving your partner. Uh, and Or you can hold them and rock them and almost have them be in a fetal position to just get them back to that feeling that they can trust you with their body. Uh, They can trust you with their soul. Uh, And that can melt away years of resentment or or, or at least open the door to clearing those those resentments and and bickerings out, uh, and getting back to the feeling that a feeling of of love and 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 excitement that got you two to together in the first place.
1: That is a perfect place to end this conversation. I think that's incredibly sage advice, and even just listening to it, it it, it touched me. Um, you know, thinking about it and, and visualizing what that experience will be like. Um, so Charlie, I want to thank you very much for, for joining us on the podcast here at Field Tripping. It's been a delightful conversation. I feel like we could have talked for hours going deep on, on certain aspects of these conversations. And certainly next time I'm in New York, Yes, or if you're ever up in Toronto, uh, would love to sit down in person and uh, go much further in depth because uh, it's been a delightful conversation. So, so thank you for your time. Um, for everybody listening, Charlie's book is "Listening to Ecstasy: The Transformative Power of MDMA." Certainly, it's, uh, something we want to work with at Field Trip uh, as soon as we can. Uh, and you know, sending all of our best wishes and luck and support to, to Rick and the entire Maps team to get through these next phases of the clinical trial and hopefully be ready for some FDA approval early next year. So thank you, Charlie. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Take care.
1: As I was preparing for the conversation with Charlie, I kept coming back to one of the comments that he made in his book about the end of the counterculture era and the creation of the me era. He said, we changed the system, but the system changed us too. And I think that's potentially one of the most important points that gets lost in this whole conversation around psychedelics. We, each and every one of us, are unique, sovereign individuals, but we cannot live in isolation. We can be rocks, we can be islands, but on some level, we are all connected. Whether your belief structure limits that to only the social contract, or gives you a deeper, more metaphysical level of us being connected by a unifying life force, We are, and for our survival, must be part of something larger than ourselves. That, by definition, is a relationship. We are connected. And as we change, that something larger must change as well. And as it changes, it will change each of us too. It's a dance. As Tom Robbins says, philosophers have argued for centuries about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But materialists have known all along that it depends on whether they are jitterbugging or dancing cheek to cheek. And what Charlie said, whether it was intentional or not, is that MDMA, in fact all psychedelics, when taken properly, help us dance cheek to cheek, not only with our partners, but with the entire world around us. And that simple interaction changes literally everything it is to be human. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page, and associate producers are Macy Baker, Sharon Bella, and Alex Sherman. Special thanks to Quill, and of course, many thanks to Charlie Winninger for joining us today. To learn more about his work, check out his new book, Listening to Ecstasy, and visit his website,
0: charliewininger.com.